There was once a theologian who was sound asleep and he was awakened in the night by a bright light and he opened his eyes and there, glowing like burnished bronze, was Jesus himself, the Lord, in his presence. And like he had said to Peter, he asked, who do you say that I am? And the theologian sat bolt upright and he said, thou art the eschatological manifestation of the soteriological hope of all mankind. And Jesus said, wait, 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 what? There's, there's an awful lot of Bible words that are 50 cent words and theological words and, and the kind of thing that basically we've tried to remove from the church experience and even new uh, translations of the Bible have tried to remove from the Bible itself because they tend to get in the way of people understanding. You know, they, we want people to be able to read it, say, I got it, I get it, and then be able to take it into their lives. And I think that's a good trend. When you read the King James, you have to look up a lot more words than when you read, say, the New American Standard Bible. But there are certain Bible words that are important words that should not be retired or replaced. And I think we see a good one here. The word that occurs most times of any word in that text that Steve read for us, which is the word abide. If we were reading the NIV, you would hear the word remain instead. And that's a word that you use a lot more in everyday life. No one ever says to you, where do you abide? But you often hear the word remain. And even though it's an old-timey word, it's the word found in the King James, the ESV uses it in order to maintain that meaning. And even though the ESV was translated in 2001, it still uses the old archaic meaning. Because the word abide, if you look it up in the dictionary, has a couple meanings. One is to follow a particular set of rules. For example, you must abide by the homeowners association's rules about how tall your fence can be. Or it can mean to tolerate. Like, I will not abide your lack of respect. I don't know if that's a line from a movie or what, but for some reason it's Southern. But instead of either of those definitions, what's meant here is the old-timey meaning, the archaic meaning, which is to live or to dwell. And this does kind of remain in our language today because you might talk about your abode. This is my humble abode, which is the place that you abide. It is where you live. It is where you dwell. It is where you remain much of the time. And the reason that abide is a better translation than the NIV's remain is because in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, there's a tie, a close connection between the notion of residing and remaining. And it's something that we don't have a word for in modern English. The best we can do is say abide and hope people know what we mean. What's that, Cameron? You want me to talk about the Hebrew and the Greek word a little more? Okay. Uh, The Hebrew word is yashav. And the word actually comes from a root that woodenly translated just means to sit. To like to do what you're doing right now. Just sit down. And then by extension, it slowly began to mean to stay, to remain, to dwell to live. The place where you go to sit most frequently is the place where you live, where you rest, where you make your home. It's an active word, but maybe kind of a passive idea. Here's some uses of it in the Old Testament. In Genesis, you remember when uh, Jacob goes to Laban, and Laban, he says, I want to marry Rachel, and Laban says, okay, you can marry Rachel, but he's got to work for it. Laban said, it is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. Or in Ruth, 
You remember when Ruth would go from, uh, per the custom, from kind of field to field and pick up extra stuff that had been dropped. And Boaz sees her and he doesn't want her to go to another field on account of she's real pretty. And so he says, Hearest thou not, my daughter? This is the King James. Go not to glean in another field, neither pass from hence, but abide here fast with my maidens. He wants her to stay, to remain, not to move on. And in Joel chapter 3 we read, But Judah shall abide forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. The notion of going on and continuing and remaining, it's really important when you go back to the roots of the Old Testament people of God. The Israel of the Old Testament started as nomadic people, wandering people. So they would measure home based on how long they stayed in a given place, and it was never all that long. And then God gave them the promise of a promised land where they could go and remain and dwell and abide, and they would have uh, some kind of security. And that was a promise that God met, and he brought them into this land flowing with milk and honey. So there's a connection between these two ideas, remaining and and living or residing, that we've lost not only in our language, but in our world today, right? We're very transitory people. People go from place to place to place. You know, it's very common for someone to live in uh, half a dozen different cities over the course of their lives. And, And so we don't have a sense of where you live is where you remain. Even if you say, even if you live with someone, you know, that's, that used to be a very much, you know, death to us part. Now I lived with that person for a while. Now I live with this other person. There's not a sense of a, a real remaining or a permanence to it. And so when we see the people of God able to finally have this permanence, to finally abide in Israel, it gives us a hint of what it means in the scriptures when you come across the A word, abide, and when you see it uh, in an example like John chapter 15, we're told to abide in me, abide in Christ, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's not just the idea of remaining there, but of drawing our life from there, of living there. In fact, in the, in the uh, Old Testament world and into the New Testament world, where Jesus lived and ministered, it was very common for families to not say, okay, we, we've outgrown our home, and so let's move. Or we've got a little more money, so let's buy a better place. You would just build on and build on as long as you could. And maybe then when uh, your grandma and grandpa has died, they would build a little thing off the side. You go live there, and your, your child and his spouse and their children would live in the main house, and you kind of build up, build up. The idea of remaining is central to the idea of living or dwelling somewhere. In fact, when Jesus says uh, to us in John 14, in my father's house, there are many rooms or there are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. That's the background there. That's how you can say, how can somebody's house have many mansions in it? It's the idea of I'm gone to prepare my home for my whole family. And I'm adding a mansion for every single person. It's going to be a massive complex. That's the promise that Jesus is making. Is that, no, you want the Greek too? Okay, so in the New Testament Greek, it's meno. And the word meno, it's less visual. It does just mean to remain. Like if I put three cookies on the table and then later on only one of them remains, that would be normal. And that would be a fairly normal use of that word. Uh, Here's some examples of it in the New Testament. Luke 26, remember as Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus with two disciples, he's describing to them, 
uh, why the Messiah had to be killed and rise again. And as they're walking, they don't recognize him. And they go to peel off to the place they're going to stay. He acts like he's going to keep on walking. And they say to him, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. It's toward evening and the day is far spent. And so he went in to abide with them, to remain, not to keep on going. In John chapter 4, So when the Samaritans came unto him, they besought him to abide with them, and he abode there two days. That is after Jesus converts the woman at the well, and she goes out and becomes the first female missionary, the first Gentile missionary, wins the whole town uh, by proclaiming Jesus and his mighty deeds. And so he stays. He doesn't move on. He, he abides only a couple days, but that's what they were asking for. In John chapter 8, Jesus therefore said to those Jews that had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now that was often taught as if the condition of the promise is, you know the truth, and the promise is, the truth will set you free. When in reality, the condition is, if you abide, remain, dwell, live in my word, then you're my disciples, and you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's a threefer. And then, of course, in John 12, I, come, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth in me may not abide in the darkness. Uh, it, meaning, you lived in darkness. Now that you've seen the light, if you've really seen the light, you will no longer dwell in the darkness. You won't remain in the darkness. You won't live there. You won't sit there. You won't be comfortable there. And notice that three of those four New Testament passages are from John, as is our main text, because John loves this word, meno, this word abide. When you read 1 John, you notice that some of the key passages, the ones that you put to memory when you were younger, they have abide at the heart of them. In fact, he uses the word seven times. You tell me if that's significant, as long as you're going to tell me that it is significant. He, he, he loves the idea of remaining, us remaining in him, him remaining in us. He tells us to abide in Christ, abide in him, and he'll abide in you, abide in the love of God, abide in the gospel, not just remain. That's so beige, so boring, but dwell, live there, live there, sit there. You remember that old vaudeville joke? Have you lived here all your life? Not yet. That's the idea. Yes, we haven't lived our whole lives in Christ yet, but we will because this is where we dwell. This is where we remain. This is where we make our, our home. We talk a lot about Jesus living in us in the American church, but the Bible talks a lot more about us living in him, abiding in him, dwelling in him. This is what Spurgeon said on the topic. Communion with Christ is a certain cure for every ill, whether it be the woodworm of woe or the smothering of earthly delight. Close fellowship with the Lord Jesus takes the bitterness from the one and the excess from the other. The bitterness from the one, the woe, and the excess from the other, the delight. That makes it so that we then have a certain cure for every ill. We are at home in Jesus. Uh, on Sunday at our men's group, uh, we, were, we were right here actually. We were reading through Mark, as we have been for quite a few weeks. We got to the passage about the four soils, or the, the, four, the sower who goes out and casts uh, the, the seed out on different kinds of soil. And we were talking about the thorns. And it always blows my mind that the thorns is an overarching category of things that keep that disciple from bearing fruit. And yet, it has what seems almost like two opposite things involved. Some of the thorns 
are the deceitfulness of wealth. So you're doing well. You're, you're making great success and you're, you're killing it and that distracts you from following Jesus and you don't bear fruit. The others are the anxieties and worries of this world. So you're not doing as well or you're struggling and that distracts you from bearing fruit. And I think that as believers, even though that's talking about a heart that's not tilled yet for the gospel, we all have thorns come into our lives for a season and we don't bear the fruit that we ought to. And I think that tends to happen when we are spiritually transitory, when we are moving around from place to place, spiritually speaking. It used to be that if you, if you were a follower of Jesus or you were raised in the church or, or if you had put your faith in him at some point, people could expect you pretty much to continue with that. Or if you were Jewish or if you're agnostic or whatever, people tended to kind of land where they landed. Now it's been very much aggrandized to just be floating around, ever-evolving, ever-changing. You know, whatever Gwyneth Paltrow is talking about in her lifestyle blog this week, that's the spiritual fad I'm into. And I think that this is starting to have a real effect on the church because even in the church, people have a sense of, I'm just, it's about the journey, man, not the destination. And so I don't need to remain or abide in any one place very long. You know, our, our family has been where we live for 15 years. Uh, I took a very different track from most of my co-graduates uh, at seminary. My classmates were mostly looking for a good first church and a good starter home. I would talk to a lot of them. You know, I, I'm going to go to this place. It's, it's kind of a hick town, but hey, I'll be there for a few years. They've got a parsonage. I'll stay there. I'll build my resume. Then I'll go to another church. And, and we said, no, we want to go somewhere where we can remain we can dwell there. We can sit there and know that that is where we will be. We want to live in a house where we can live there and get comfortable and remain there and dwell there. And I'm not suggesting that one of those is more biblical than the other. There are many people who are very transitory missionaries and doctors for, you know, doctors without borders. They're moving all around. Jesus himself went around place to place. But I'm using it as a parable. And spiritually speaking, we need to be not transitory, but dwelling in the way that they would have dwelt in Jesus' day. To say, we were wandering Arameans in the desert. God called us out and said, here's the land flowing with milk and honey. Sit down, make a home, dwell here, remain here. The thing is, once you're moving again and again, sometimes people don't even tend to unpack if they move so much. Spiritually speaking, that's not where we want to be. And, you know, I think moving is a perfect illustration because, in a sense, if you put your faith in Jesus, that's what it is. It's moving. You were in Adam. That's where you lived. And now you're in Christ. That's where you live. You were in darkness, and now you're in the light. You were in death under spiritual bondage, and now you're in uh, life and freedom. You're in a new location now, and you don't bring all your baggage with you into Christ, but you do bring yourself and all that you are and all that that entails and if we're truly in Christ, then we'd remain in him. I don't know how many of you watch Frasier or ever did in the past 20 years, but remember how the old man, Martin, moved in with his son, and he wasn't really moved in until they delivered his ratty old comfy chair. And then this is his home, because that's where his chair is. I think that's a good illustration for how we ought to be with Christ. Not that we should get in a chair and be lazy or complacent, but that we ought to say, this is my home. 
I have sought, and as Jesus promised, I'm not still seeking and wandering my whole life. I have found. He said, seek and you will find. And I think this can help us make sense of some other passages in John's writing that seem to teach a philosophy or a principle that if you continue to sin, you're not a Christian. If you remain in the darkness, if you remain in sin, then the truth is not in you. Understand that with the word abide now plugged back in. Like everyone says, I mean, that, that freaks me out because of, of course to some degree I remain in sin. I still sin. Everyone still sins, right? But do you abide in sin? Do you, do you live? Is that where your Martin Crane chair is? Is that where you go home? Or is that where you find yourself and suddenly an alarm say, I don't belong here, and then run back home? You've moved from Adam to Christ, from death to life. Therefore, anyone who says that they're in Christ, but their home is still in Adam, is fooling themselves. In fact, that's exactly what John says. If anyone remains in sin and says that they are in Christ, the truth is not in them. They're deceiving themselves if they go on living in Adam or in sin. But what if somebody, what if I bumped into somebody I hadn't seen in a couple of years? And they said, how are you doing, Zach? And I said, well, I'm doing great. My family moved to Mason. Which, by the way, if we were going to move, that is where I would want to move. Downtown Mason is the most charming, cute little town in the world. And, uh, and I'm not just pandering. I'm, I'm really, we looked at it for a while. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what if I said to them, you should stop by sometime. Uh, give me a call. I'll tell you how to get there. It's so cool. We love it. Calvin loves it. Aaron loves it. We're so happy at home there. And then... As usually happens, they never followed up. We never saw each other. And then they were driving down our street in North Lansing. That's that way. And as they drove by, they saw my car in the driveway. And then they saw Aaron's car in the driveway. And they saw Calvin riding his bike up and down in front of the house. And Aaron working in the garden. And then they went up and knocked on the door. And I was in there watching TV. And all of our stuff was still there. They'd say to themselves, did this guy lie to me or what? Is this like somebody trying to, to get rid of me so that I don't visit him at home? Because even if I went and stayed in Mason for a couple of weeks with somebody, if all my stuff is still in my house on LaSalle Boulevard, that is where I live. You know, I, I have, for more than 30 years in a row, spent a week every summer at Lake Louise Baptist Camp. But I don't live there. It'd be awesome if I did, but I don't. I think we all have that friend who talks about how she knows great pizza and great bagels because she lived in New York and it turns out she spent like three and a half weeks there one time. But when Jesus and the apostles talk about abiding in him, this is what they mean. Don't just crash there for a while. Don't spend a week there every summer. Don't make him your retreat or your getaway or your second home or your vacation cottage. Move all your stuff in there except the stuff that needs to be thrown in the dumpster and live there. Remain there so people know they will find you there. There, you have the covering of the wings of God and you are safe in his strong right hand. To abide in him means that you are always in his presence. Well, you're here at church, at the Lord's table, or when you're at home washing dishes, or if you are being chewed out by your boss for some mistake he made, and it's on Zoom, so you know you could make a gesture down low that he wouldn't see, but you don't because you're in the presence of God. You're in his presence when you're sick. You're in his presence when you're healthy. You know, there's an old saying. Uh, I've seen it on t-shirts before. It's, life's a big series of trials and temptations, and then you die. Is that how you've heard that one? 
Life's a big series of trials and then you die. And in both of those, the series of trials and in our death, in life and in death, we have to be in Christ. He gives us confidence to face them. You think Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego would have gone into that, that burning, blazing furnace that they just watched incinerate two guards if they didn't have Christ with them? No way. No way. They would, they would have shrunk back, absolutely. But there were four, right? I threw three in there, and there are four now, and one of them looks like the Son of God. You know why? It's a simple reason. It was the Son of God with them. We have confidence in him to, to face temptation as well. Forget willpower and, and mantras and tricks. Abide in him. Talk to him. Be with him. Dwell with him in, in your life. And, and you will find that temptation no longer has the, the appeal that it did. Because you're with Christ. You're not about to drag him into the, the old darkness that you once walked in. He's going to lead you into the light. And during life, and especially when we die, we need him. Every hour, we need him, as the song goes. I'd say keep him close, and that's often how we approach things, but it's, uh, it's backwards. Stay close to him. Dwell in him. Remain in him. Lean on him for strength. Look to him for your spirit to be refreshed and renewed. And the most beautiful thing that we have in him is the confidence and the comfort that at the end of our lives, when we stand before God... We will be standing before the same loving friend whose presence we have been in every single day of our lives since we first put our faith in him. That is the confidence of a Christian. We don't just say we live there. We don't just have uh, uh, rights to go. You know, I've got some friends that if they're at my house, they can just go to the fridge. They don't have to ask. They know that, you know, I'm fine to do this. That's not what it's like with Jesus. We, we've, our name's on the deed. We've got the keys. We have access. He has given us access to the very presence of God himself. Abide in him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this beautiful passage in John and all of the many passages in the New Testament that tell us where to live, where to dwell, where to remain. And Lord, we pray that when we stray, we would know that we are always welcome back home and we would go there post haste. We would leave the darkness, flee the darkness and return to the light, return to you, Lord, to receive forgiveness, to, re to be in your presence, to commune with you. And Lord, as we prepare to have the Lord's Supper and commune with you and with one another in Holy Communion, we pray that you would just prepare our hearts for that that we would know that you are in our presence, even in a, a, a way that you are not each and every day, that in this holy meal, we are fed spiritually, that we do partake of Christ crucified and all the benefits thereof, that we, we participate in the, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus in this bread and in this cup. And we thank you for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.